point. We're living in a, you know, a modern age of uh, the new psychedelic renaissance. And I thought, this is this is not real. This is uh, my gosh. I'm on the radio. People hear me. How we give to others and affect others' lives, and uh, what we do with it is important. Don't focus on the rest of the world. Just focus on your own life. And facts can't deal with emotions. It, it's like apples and oranges. Bronze age and iron age. I think all could all be called the wood age. You're not picking a president. You're actually <laughs> picking a roommate. Because you don't know what their story is. You don't know what pain they're dealing with. Always part of me wanted an audience. It's naive to think that human beings have stopped evolving. Uh, the people are purple. The, the world is a very rich place if you start exploring. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the podcast Point Counterpoint. I'm your host, Chris Wright, and this is brought to you by Counterpoint Media Productions. I'm joined here by Father Albert Robinson. Would you like to introduce yourself here? Sure. Uh, I'm Father Albert. Um, I'm a Dominican friar. Uh, uh, just under a year ordained, uh, an assistant chaplain uh, at St. Albert's in Edinburgh. Um, for the moment, I'm shortly to move to become the assistant chaplain at Fisher House in Cambridge um, and move to our Dominican Priory in Cambridge, our Novitiate House, um, to live there. We'd like to start us out with a prayer. Just to yeah, a yeah. Good way to... In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our Lady, Mother of preachers, pray, pray for, for us. us. Saint Dominic, our Father, pray, pray for, for us. Saint Albert the Great, pray, pray for, for us. us. In the name of the Father and of the Son. Excellent. And of the Holy Spirit. All right. So this is kind of the the perfect time time to have you on, on a podcast. You know, it's been about a year since your ordination. Uh, so how would you, how would you say is your is your general experience with with the priesthood so far in, in that period? Um, so the first year is um, a very special year. Um, it's it's a year when you get used to the idea of being a priest. Um, you spend a lot of time, particularly if you live in a in a in a house, a religious house, you spend a lot of time uh, with people knocking on the door saying, "Is there a priest available?" Um, and then all of a sudden, you have to get used to the idea that you can't just go and find someone else. It is in fact you, and there is this moment of, "Oh no, it's it's me this time." Um, so there is that kind of um, getting used to the, the change that's, that's happened in your life. Um, because one of the things that's very, I suppose, strange about ordination is that you're waiting for it for a very long time. It, the, the formation process is long and then it very quickly happens. Um, so in my case, it was very quickly that I finished essays, finished exams, finished um, my retreat, I was ordained, then I moved and then um, so I, it's it's one of those times of getting used to um, to what's happened, adjusting your life to what's happened, um, getting used to saying mass. Um, saying mass is not a natural kind of gesture for most people and, and a series of gestures. So getting used to 
those kinds of things, pushing your hands in the right places and all those kinds of moving your hands around in the right way. Um, so uh, that's um, uh, on a practical level, very important. And then there's also the spiritual level. I think I found um, my first Easter as a priest um, very beautiful and um, I was very, I was quite ill during Holy Week um, and not very well at all, but um, I still found the process of going through the liturgies very beautiful and um, it was very important um, for my first year as a priest. Getting used also to hearing confessions and um, the kinds of counsel that people um, need, um, getting used to that. Um, in some ways that was easier because the only way to prepare oneself to hear confessions is by going to confession and so actually if you are a regular penitent then it's the the transition isn't as as um, arresting as it could be um, so it's been a good year um, i've been very blessed actually to have the students um here um at st albert's because um they've been very supportive in this first year of priesthood and have really welcomed me here so it's been very good excellent and what and you start out, uh, you know, Anglo-Catholic, I should say, you know, uh, Anglican. Uh, what, how would you describe, you know, that journey from 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 that position into not just into Catholicism, but into the priesthood as well? So what I that spurred that. Yeah. Okay. That change? Um, so I, when I was at Oxford doing my master's degree, I I started to go to a, a place called Pusey House. Um, which is, uh, was founded at the end of the 19th century. It's a very interesting part of the history of, of somewhere like Oxford because um, in the 19th century, the thoughts from a lot of Anglo-Catholic clergy, um, although they wouldn't really have called themselves that, I think at that time really still stuck to the idea of being Tractarians. Um, they were very concerned about the rise of liberalism within the university setting in Oxford. Um, and they basically thought that the university would become secular very quickly um, in, in the, towards the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. And so their, their overwhelming concern was that the colleges, each of the little colleges that make up the university, the constitutional colleges, each have a chapel, which obviously goes back to the monastic foundations of these places when they were Catholic institutions. And their concern was that these chapels were going to be got rid of, the chaplains were going to be no longer needed by the chap by the, the colleges. And so they wanted to set up a, an Anglo-Catholic, a Tractarian um, college, um, or at least chaplaincy for, for students. And that's what they, they, they set up, it was this, this chaplaincy. Founded just a couple of years after the death of Edward Bouverie Pusey, who was a professor of Hebrew in the university and um, one of the Tractarians, one of the original Tractarians, along with Newman and Keith and others. Um, and it was there that I, um, I, I value the, the time I spent at Pusey really because it taught me um, the beginnings of the Catholic faith um, as a very um, uh, real sense that I have of, of, of the beginnings of my journey to Catholicism really beginning there. Um, because all of a sudden I was surrounded by young people who were interested in the same kinds of things that I was interested in. They were very high church Anglicans, um, we shared opinions, um, uh, and, and from there, after I'd finished my master's degree, I went off to, to three parishes in North London, um, 
three Anglo-Catholic high church Anglican parishes to work as a pastoral assistant. Um, and I, I mean, I enjoyed my time as a pastoral assistant, um, but uh, it was during that time, I suppose, that, that something of the, um, the intellectual conversion process began um, fairly early on while I was in those parishes. Um, and, and I was really beginning to question the, the plausibility of the argument that Anglo-Catholicism makes of being a branch of the great Catholic Church, um, whether it was possible to, whether the arguments about the validity of orders were plausible, because the argument is that there's, there's no break in the, in the, in the apostolic succession, meaning that the order, orders are valid and the sacraments are valid. I really questioned that, um, began to question that in my mind. And once you begin to under, undermine that kind of sacramental basis, um, that's really the beginning of the end, I think. Um, and so it began relatively early on when I was in the parish, um, the parishes. And then there was a kind of curious spiritual conversion, which, um, uh, which is something that I suppose at the time I didn't really have that much of a sense of. Um, it wasn't like a kind of bolt of lightning um, from... Uh, from heaven. Um, it wasn't a, D a Damascus moment, um, but it was very perceptibly um, a, <clears throat> a spiritual conversion, which I only really appreciated later on, which was um, going to Paris, of all places. Um, uh, it was uh, the, the parish priest of the, of the um, parishes, one of the parishes that I was working in, was a member of um, something called, now what's it called? Um, oh, I can't remember the name of the religious order now. Company of Mission Priests, that's it. Oh. The Company of Mission Priests. So Anglicanism in the 19th century, as it was becoming more high church, um, developed these religious orders. And one of them was the Company of Mission Priests. And the idea was that it would function a little bit like an oratory, actually, that um, there would be a community of priests living together. They would live off of one salary. Um, it was designed actually to, to help to, to, to provide priests for, for big um, inner city parishes where there weren't enough, there wasn't enough money to pay for, for lots of different clergy. And they lived a common life. And then after, the, in the kind of flourishing of the ecumenical movement after the, uh, after the Second Vatican Council, um, with the kind of hope and expectation that there was um, in that period. They became associated with the Vincentian Fathers. Um, and so we went on a pilgrimage to sites associated with St. Vincent de Paul. And of course, one of those sites um, is the Rudebach site of the apparition in 1831, something like that. Oh, so it was just um, a week ago. Yeah. A little over a week ago, yeah. Got this year. Got the there was something about going there when I reflected on it much later that really was, I think, the spiritual mo conversion of, of my decision to become a Catholic. And I think I, I had essentially resolved by the time I got back from Paris that I would become a Catholic. Um, and, um, and so I, I, um, 
I left the parishes in July and, and received instruction. I was received into the church in January of 2013, so 10 years ago, this last January. Um, yeah. Um, and then in terms of the priesthood, I'd always, obviously I'd begun a process of, of thinking about ordination in the Church of England. And because the Church of England, um, the, the, the place I was in the Church of England was very high church, um, very Anglo-Catholic. Um, I had a very Catholic vision of what the, of, of the priesthood actually, um, uh, and and so it became, and because I I knew that there are you know Anglican religious orders and and um, although not very healthy even, and when I was uh, uh, an Anglo-Catholic, you know fewer numbers of vocations, um, as is the case in many Catholic religious orders. Um, uh, there was a frame of reference for me to think about priesthood very early on, and in some ways there was a continuity in terms of my thinking about these things. Um, and I thought about becoming a monk, um, uh, and, and sometimes when I go to monasteries I think actually it would have been <laughs> quite nice, the, the silence of the monastery. Um, uh, but um, and particularly living in, in city centre places like Dominicans mm -hmm. often do. Um, uh, but there, there were. I, I tried. I thought about Ampleforth um, in in Yorkshire, and and um, I, I don't think I didn't think it would be a good fit for me. So I, I it was a very brief thought. Really, I went on one visit, and um, um, it was a good thing to do. And and I have a great. Um, respect for the English Benedictine congregation. Um, but it wasn't, I don't think it would have been a right fit for me. And, and I thought about a couple of other places, a monastery in the south of France. Um, but again, I don't think that would have been such a good fit for my sort of family circumstances. Mm. Um, uh, and I thought about the Dominicans for a number of reasons. Um, one was that it's, um, we're very blessed to, to have vocations. Um, and to have have had for an extended period of time a constant stream of people coming. Um, it's one of the mysteries of, of the 20th century in that whilst we haven't had classes of 12 or 15 or 20, we have had years where there have been one or two or three or four um, constantly. There are very few years, I think, when we've had no novices. Um, uh, this at the moment we've had we have one novice at the moment. Um, uh, when I was a novice, we had um, there were six of us: three for the English province, two for the Dutch, and, and one for the Swiss province. So sometimes they're bigger classes because we have people from other provinces. But we've we've always had vocations, and so it in some ways it's an easier thing to enter a religious order. I mean, it's partly I. I I wanted to make the, the process of entering the religious order easier. I think it's easier to enter a religious order when there is this stream of vocations, this trickle of vocations, because it means that there's not so much pressure on you. If it's not right for you, then that's okay. Um, there's not so much of a kind of pinning of hopes on, on the candidate. And yeah, because then, you know, when you, when you do enter that, you know, it's, you're going in because you actually want to, not, not yeah, and, some and, sense yeah, of obligation. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think, I think there was a kind of practical side of things. The other practical side of things is that a lot of our houses are quite focused in the south, so I could be closer to my mum and, and things like that. 
Um, uh, although ironically, I was sent to, up here to Edinburgh as my first assassination. But um, but th there were a lot of kind of practical thoughts about it. It wasn't going to be um, impossible for me to see my mum, and it was those kinds of things that were 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 a real consideration. And also because the the, the province was was really um, going through a, 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 a renewal of its liturgy and um, and. Uh, and there was something very attractive in the apostolate of the province. And there were young men, larger year groups, actually we had a number of years where there were six or four or, um, or seven novices. And so the larger year groups also kind of encouraged me. Um, but also that focus on um, clear teaching, clear orthodox um Thomist teaching, um, and um, and the desire for truth, which really had kind of animated a lot of that intellectual conversion to Catholicism when I was an Anglican, um, uh, because at the heart of my intellectual conversion was that was one where I thought, well, this is uh, it's nice, it's it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a it's an argument, right? But I don't think it's true, and. Other people come to different conclusions, which is why they stay as Anglicans. Um, but I came to a conclusion that I didn't think it was true. So because I didn't think it was true, I thought that it was necessary for me to leave. So when I thought that actually at the heart of the Dominican order is this desire for truth, it seemed like a very good fit. Um, and that really, I kind of suppose, crystallised um, a lot of my thoughts um, while I was living in, in central London, after I was received into the church, I lived at a, a parish called St. Patrick's in Soho Square. And we dealt with a lot of things um, to do with material poverty. We, we, we had, ran soup kitchens and things, but we also ran, um, were very keenly aware of the, of the intellectual poverty and the spiritual poverty of, of those um, who we dealt with and, and ministered to in various ways. And the Order of Reaches did seem to be one of those places where um, the, those kinds of problems, those kinds of spiritual and intellectual poverties um, in society could be, could be dealt with and helped. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, you know, in, in what way would you say that the Dominican Order you know, responds to these, to these intellectual and spiritual poverties more than, so than you know, other orders or perhaps so I think one of the reasons, I suppose, is because we are, we were founded to do this kind of thing, right? Um, uh, we we were founded to to combat a very pernicious heresy, um, uh, not by, um, not by, kind of browbeating people, but by making by preaching and by making arguments that, that were tr designed to win people over. Um, and I think the, the order is, is good at, at this kind of, of thing, in part because um, what we tend to do, and this is something which is borne out in the intellectual, in the way of thinking that St. Thomas has, St. Thomas Aquinas has, 
which is to to um, to always see the objections, see in objections, and the objections that, that our contemporaries might have about things to do with the Catholic faith, to see what might be true in those objections or what we can accept in those objections, but then to reframe so that we can, within the context of those um, objections, show either why the person has not understood what the Catholic faith teaches or um, offer a, a, a more positive way of understanding what the Catholic faith teaches, which they don't didn't have before. Um, uh, when they, if they see it in a negative way, to try and reframe it such that we can affirm what's positive in the other position and then present what we think. Um, and and also because we are very, um, I suppose, in touch with a lot of um, with. I mean, I don't, I don't think that, that other orders are not in touch with the modern world, but um, I think we we are, we have a lot of online apostolates and we have a lot of, much like the Jesuits do actually as well, but we have a lot of, um, of particular apostolates that we, we, we do because um, it wouldn't be something that monks would do, for example. Um, monks aren't there to, to be, um, to work in the same way that we are. Um, and so that's why I think we're, um, very, I mean, and, and quite successful, I think, in 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 putting over um, the church's teachings in a in a an attractive and um, thoughtful way. Um, uh, well. Yeah, I think that intellectual side is is just so important. You know, I think you know, I think for a lot of people, including my, myself, early early on, just you know, you know, people people want that intellectual side of Catholicism. I think I, I think I wanted that early on, but I really wasn't wasn't really getting it, you know, to the same level. I did. And you know, Bishop Barron has talked about this, where where uh, we we give people kind of like a, a watered down version mm -hmm. of the faith faith and stuff, and they, you know, there's really so much more to to offer. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, full fat Catholicism is what we want. Really. Yes. Um, yeah, I think it's it's no good trying to just provide. Um, something that people might find appealing. Um, I think we have to present the, the truth of the Catholic faith in its entirety. Um, but we also have to acknowledge that there's a lot of, uh, it's one of the things I suppose that's difficult about, about priesthood and things is that I think, and, and people have this, I think some people do sometimes have this vision when they enter the order, they're off going to be an evangelist and a great evangelizer and they're going to you know, get loads and loads of people to convert. And, and the reality is that it takes an awfully long time on individual conversations, on individual talks with people, um, to, to kind of encourage people, coax people into the into back into the church if they've if they've left, or to encourage people to enter the church, um, and because everyone has their own particular set of so um, intellectual or moral or um, uh, or whatever historical questions, which which might prevent them from embracing the fullness of the faith. And so it's 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 very much um, learning how to deal with particular people and their and their particular questions that they have, which uh, which which are always very particular to them. Um, uh, and I think that's one of the advantage, one of the good things about our formation, really, um, is that we are taught how to be sensitive to other people's particular questions. Um, 
uh, and to always be prudent about how we correct people and, and prudent about how we, um, pro you know, remonstrate with people or whatever we do, you know, uh, to be prudent about how we, how we deal with these things because, um, because I think often when arguments are presented in a, in a way that's basically designed to just win an argument, that's, that's not the way, that's not the way to do it. We aren't here to just win arguments by clever, clever arguments. We're mm. here to, to, to save souls. Um, and, and sometimes that requires, you know, a, a firm word, um, but more often than not, it requires something a lot more gentle. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's that's kind of kind of what Saint Augustine found is is you know he he start started out you know of course with the with the Platonists and then he 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 kind of discovered that you know basically through rhetoric and stuff you can make you know any argument you know just just because an argument you know wins wins over another one doesn't necessarily mean that it's that it's better so then mm -hmm. he decided to reject Platonism and he came back to Christianity. What would you say is is one of the the main problems that that we see in the church is causing people to you know fall away or just not really want to join at all? What's one way that we could combat that? Um, I think it's difficult to isolate one particular thing. Um, I think there are a number of things that are I think pressing. Um, one of the things that the Holy Father has spoken about quite a lot is this question of joy. And I think that's true. I think there's a real question around um, people who don't really seem to enjoy the faith um, and seem to kind of almost grin and bear being Christians, mm -hmm. being Catholics. Mm -hmm. So that's a real problem. Um, but I think fundamental to that, and, and more fundamental, I suppose, and, and a way in which I think you can see a great deal of continuity in the thought of, of John Paul II and, and Benedict and Francis is um, this question about the person of Jesus Christ, which is, is a very keen question of post-conciliar um, papal teaching, the, the, the person of Christ and um, the difference that that, that that he makes to life, the fact that he is the meaning of, of our lives. Um, and the, I suppose the difficulty, uh, one of the real difficulties is that people, sometimes it doesn't seem as if that their being Catholic makes all that much of a difference to their life. And, and it doesn't seem to be something which they engage with in a joyful and meaningful way. Um, and so I think it's, <clears throat> I mean, there is there is something quite uniquely depressing about going to places and if you do supplies and things or go to visit places um, where everything just seems so um, maybe tired or maybe just um, uh, where there's not very much joy or where there's not, um, it almost feels like everything's just routine. And um, it's not to say we should be you know, looking for places that have, you know, all of our places should be places where there's this great effervescence of, of emotion and um, uh, and it should all be based on sentiment and feeling. I don't think that at all. Um, but, 
but it's people aren't going to become Catholics if they can't see that it really makes any difference to your life mm -hmm. or that it makes you very happy. That's, I think, a big problem. Linked to that, I think, is um, are some of the internal divisions within the church. I think um, people aren't going to join if all you do is spend your time saying how awful things are. Um, and I think that happens on, on both sides, um, particularly at the moment, maybe with the, with the whole, as we, as we um, there have been a sort of series of minor eruptions in the past few years around, around particular flashpoints and on both sides of the, as much as I hated the, the liberal and conservative sides of the church, um, I don't think we should speak in those kinds of terms. Um, but on, on, on all of the party sides within the church, I think there's a lot of talk about what's wrong with the church. And the church as an yeah. institution obviously does have some problems. Um, you don't have to look far to see them um, because it's, it's made by sinful <laughs> human beings who are the visible uh, members of it. Um, uh, but we can't spend all of our time saying how terrible things are and then it, and then wonder why exactly. no one's coming here. Um, uh, so I think there are a number, there are those kinds of things, um, uh, either from those who, who are very concerned about some of the aspects of, of the synod on synodality and the, and the, um, and some of the way that's happening, things are happening in Germany, or equally those who don't see it happening quick enough and, who want to change lots of the church's teachings and, and things which aren't going, you know, can't be changed. And, and so um, I think that side of things is very um, wounding to the church um, uh, and to the church's mission. Um, uh, and I think both, all the, all the sides in this have, have some, something to, um, some other, something to answer for in all of this. Mm -hmm. and, and it's it's particularly a challenge, I think, in this case for 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 clergy actually as well, because in in my two years of being a cleric and my one year of being a priest, um, trying to hold that kind of centre ground and trying to to um, uh, one of the antiphons we sing about Saint Dominic is in Medio Ecclesia, in the midst of the church, and one of the vocations of a Dominican, I think, is to be in the midst of the church, trying to trying to, to hold some kind of, of um, peace together between different parts of the church, um, which can often be in tension. And that's quite a tough thing to try and do at the moment. Um, uh, quite a difficult thing to try and do at the moment. Um, that's certainly one thing. Um, uh, and I think, yeah, the main, one of the main problems is this kind of mechanical we're just doing this because we have to um, uh, feel to it. And that, that often finds its way, because the, the way in which most people encounter the church is, is really through the liturgy and coming to a, to a Sunday mass or um, coming to a family a function or event um, which has a sacramental. Um, for them, it would just be sort of like a family event that just happens to happen in church. It's not um, quite the way we see it, hopefully, but... Um, that's one of the ways that people actually really encounter the church. And, and if there's no sense of, of the wonder of the sacramental life or of the life of grace, 
Um, if that sense of wonder is missing, then I think that's a real negative for people because they, they just don't see what the point is then, right? Um, and, and if theology is just kind of reduced to um, to social questions and to moral questions, which is a, a, a huge thing really in, in, in recent theological history, I suppose. There's lots of people are much more concerned and, and rightly concerned about the environment and, and mm. the, 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 the integrity of our common home, as we say now, and, um, uh, and all those kinds of questions. Um, but if, if people just see the, um, uh, see the theology as just a series of social questions, then what you've essentially done is reduce the faith to a series of social questions and, and, and you aren't dealing with the bigger and more central doctrines of the faith, which, which are to do with the nature of God and, and who Christ is and the, the beauty of the, of the life of grace in the face of the saints and all those kinds of questions, which actually I think are the much more attractive questions. Obviously, it's very important that we have a robust answer for questions around all kinds of modern moral questions. Um, but often it's just simply reduced to that, which I don't think is healthy for the life of the church. Um, so. Yeah, that's perfect. You can't get bogged down too much in the negativity because, you know, it's very easy just to, to get too much ingrained into that and uh, you get depressed about all this. That's really how, how the devil starts getting in there, mm -hmm. is that, you know, you, you, start, you start losing focus of, you know, the, the actual important part of the matter. It's, it's not that, it's, that you shouldn't focus at all on, on problems. But you know you you can't let them uh, distract you from no no um, and uh, um, one of the one of the devil's tactics I think really is to ruin the good um, mm -hmm. to to kind of undermine mm -hmm. you can see it, it it's often the case that whenever I go on retreat and I've had a really lovely retreat there will always be something that will happen shortly afterwards that will always you know ruin the, the, I suppose, the emotive feelings of having been on retreat or something. You know, it will always have, there will always be something about um, the experience immediately after I come back from a really <coughs> excellent retreat or whatever. And it's it's the way of, uh, he has of, of, of ruining the good, right? Um, of always seeking where there is good in the church, it's, it's always where his attacks are, are most found, actually. Um, yeah, wherever there's something exciting or new or good which is happening in the life of the church, there's always a kind of negative force, which is the devil's assault spirit. Um, Precisely. Yeah. What would you say, say is, the, is, is it the proper way to go about, you know, evangelizing to, you know, to friends, to family, co-workers, you know? Um, a different answer depending on who it is. But. I think it depends on who you're talking about, um, and it depends on your relationship to them. Mm -hmm. But the key is relationship, I think. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the things that you see in the scriptures. Um, people are called in relational terms. It's not... Um, I think often the worst way of doing it is the kind of knock-on-the-door kind of way. Mm -hmm. I I, I think sometimes that there are sometimes there are some organizations in the Catholic Church, the Legion of Mary, for example, who if you ask them to come to your parish will knock on the door of every single parish person in the parish. And that's a great witness. And I think sometimes it can bear real fruit. Mm -hmm. But um as I was talking earlier about um about the question of um of encouraging people to enter the church. A lot of it is on individual conversations which take place over a, a long period of time 
um, you know, I've seen enough people into the church now, either because I myself have received them in the year, in this year since I've been a priest, or um, or I've instructed them and, and been their sponsor and things when I've been a student brother. There is there's a, a very long process to it, and it it involves um, two things. One is a is a I think a, a relationship which is um, honest enough that it can can deal with the on the real questions that the person has that you're not dancing around the issue that you're actually dealing with it head on and that often those issues can be extremely personal um, uh, particularly for people where it might be probably you know there might be around questions of sexuality for example it might be that that their sexuality is something which would be holding them back from embracing the fullness of the catholic faith and those things are very personal and have to be dealt with on a very only in a relationship which actually can deal with those kinds of, of issues head on. Um, so there's got to be a kind of, of honesty to it. But there's also the second aspect to it, it again goes back to this kind of question of attraction. People will actually um, be evangelized um, if they see people living a, a good and um, and, and holy Catholic life and, trying, and striving for holiness. Um, it was Paul VI who said that, uh, he, you know, he, he said that um, people won't listen to teachers anymore um, in, this, in this age. They won't listen to teachers. They need people that offer them an example. It was something along those lines. I can't remember the exact. He had a much pithier way of putting it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but um, it, you have to be able to provide an example days it's not just simply about saying as i said it's not about hitting people over the head with what the church teaches what the church teaches about particular issues it's actually much better to provide an example of a of a, of a life where actually the church makes a real difference to to who you are and the person of jesus christ gives meaning to your life um, and that's the way that you evangelize i think um, because i think that's the only way that people see the meaning of it that it makes any difference. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a very rare type of person that can just look at a bunch of knockout arguments from some apologists like a, a Chip Trentorn or someone and go, uh, oh yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. Okay, gonna be Catholic now. Uh, I mean, like, some uh, some intellect. I mean, there's, there's, there's an important that, intellectual yes. side to things, it's a, which I it's think a very actually, small minority that will Yeah, I don't, and it's not the whole picture, mm -hmm. but there are some where you know if you've got to you've got kind of got to the end of the issue and there's just this one intellectual question or a series of intellectual questions that are there. I think sometimes there are, it is necessary to just provide a very straightforward argument from the church's position. Um, but again, that's partly because it's, it's individual, it's, it's individual conversations, individual relationships, um, uh, which means that it takes an awfully long time. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's kind of one of the curiosities about the priesthood and about about this 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 is actually how we spend you should spend more, more of our time really mm -hmm. as priests it's not mm -hmm. unfortunately a lot of priests have to in, deal with an increasing a, a burgeoning load of paperwork and and administrative questions and and stuff but actually a lot of our time it's the, the key to the priesthood in some ways is as far as i can see it from my vast experience of 10 months is there's a lot of it which is about wasting time in the sense of you're wasting time with people for a positive it's not like you're sitting there watching netflix and binge binge watching episodes of things but 
you are actually wasting time in the sense of you are you have a radical availability for people um which means that it doesn't matter if they need to talk to you for an hour and a half about something mm-hmm. um uh and that's the only way having that radical availability is the only way that, that you become a i think a, a useful you know a useful tool of evangelization really. Yeah, or, uh, or what's what's the name of that one uh, uh, Protestant apologist? Can't remember Tozzi. Uh, he just, he did like a a Bayesian analysis of the papacy and just decided there's a ninety percent chance that it was true. So he decided to convert. Right. Off, off of that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Or shifting. I'd like here. to see the maths. Yes. <laughs> uh, apparently, he would he would hear some argument and he would immediately take out his notebook and start. Put it down note and then yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's an argument for an argument against and I see. You wait out the, the math. He wait out the maths. We were always told in maths classes to show our workings. Mm-hmm. I'd be entertained to see his workings. Mm-hmm. That would be interesting. <laughs> Sh- shifting gears a little bit, uh, into the more theological side. Uh so uh, the the twistic Dominican theology has a different view of grace than, say, the Jesuits. So how would you, how would you what is grace? So uh, grace is um, uh, is God's gift to us to make us holy. Mm-hmm. Um, grace really just means gift, um, and there are different kinds of grace, um, but uh, grace, as it's as it's most often referred to. Um, most often refers to sanctifying grace, which is that participation in the divine nature which we get in the first letter of St. Peter. Um, the participation in the divine nature which makes us holy um, with God's own life dwelling within us. Um, the question on the Dominican Jesuit mm. side really is more to do with how freedom works yes. and how grace and freedom works um, and if you want to talk about that one I'd need to do a bit more reading before mm-hmm. I did uh, any uh, okay uh, you might have to edit that bit out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> is it not quite into your area or? not quite into okay. my area um, uh, not so much my kind of thing mm-hmm. um, I, I, I had, I had one quick question. I'm not, I'm not sure how, how into do, do you know much about the, the philosophy theology of uh, Gregory or Saint, oh, arguably Saint uh, Gregory of Palamas and what's it called? Hesychism? Hesychism. Hesychism? Again, not completely one of my areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, and I can, I can, we can redo a, a, a this and and um, you can edit things together and we sure. can, um, I can do some reading and before and, and we can do an, another uh, you can splice them together you could, yeah <laughs> um, so if you give me a bit of time to do some reading I could do a part two <laughs> that's true yes that is true we could do a part two <laughs> I can do some reading and then we can mm-hmm. um, talk about it it's not one of those things I have at my fingertips. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah I also don't know much about. It. I know it's kind of an alternative to Thomism and Scotism. It has to do with achieving like lasting inner peace through uninterrupted uninterrupted repetition of the Jesus prayer. Yeah, that's the basic principle yeah. of Hesychism. Yeah, um, 
the question um, for Palamas is really more about mm -hmm. the relationship. It's a question about grace and um, uh, and a question about distinctions, um, which Palamas doesn't make and which Thomists would make. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, yeah, I will look at some. Mm -hmm. We can. I can look at some things. We can talk about. Yeah. So, speaking of Thomism, what what is it that that makes Thomism, you know, a, the a better philosophy compared to, say, Scotism or, or some other uh, various Catholic philosophies? Okay. Um, uh, so the one of the perennial issues for um, Catholic theology um, has been the relationship between faith and reason. Mm -hmm. Um, this was key to um, uh, one of the key questions that, that John Paul II dealt with in his um, pontificate with Fides at Ratio. It was central to, to the life of of Saint, of Benedict the Sixteenth. That was a bit premature. Um, uh, um, one of the real questions in Benedict the Sixteenth's pontificate, and in fact, was so important to him that it was a, a key part of the spiritual testament that he left after his death. Um, so one of the key questions for Catholic theology, one of the things that's always a kind of sticking point is this relationship between faith and reason. Um, it was key to, um, a key question in, in, um, in theology after the Enlightenment, um, but also important in the 20th century. John Paul II dealt with this in Fides at Ratio. It was central to um, the thought of Benedict XVI. In fact, it was so important to his thought that it was one of the key themes of the spiritual testament that he left at his death. Um, and Catholic theology has often veered um, on one side or the other and gone too far with one side or the other. Um, in the face of the Enlightenment, um, in response to the Enlightenment, really, the, the Catholic theology became too rationalist, it focused too much on um, power of reason and um, did so at the expense of divine revelation. There was then a kind of um, reaction against that and it became too fideist. Mm. And in some sense there was this kind of pendulum swing backwards and forwards um, between these two, two sides. Um, and through a series of convoluted um, turns in the 19th century, um, some of which were just entirely fortuitous and um, I think really providential, God's providence was at work in all of these things. Um, Leo XIII had been taught by some, um, some teachers who had revived St. Thomas's thought. Um, and so Leo XIII, um, under the influence of his own teachers um, of the Roman school in the 19th century, this kind of resurgence of Thomas thought um, with the Jesuits, um, he issued um, an encyclical called Eterno Patris, um, which um, set St. Thomas um, as the perennial philosopher and theologian of the Catholic faith. And one of the key questions that he had there 
or one of the key reasons why he brought that was that um, in St. Thomas, this relationship between faith and reason um, kind of comes to, to some kind of fitting and, um, and reasonable balance. Um, we aren't, St. Thomas is not um, a rationalist, nor is he a fideist, but he, um, he, he distills in some ways some of that medieval monastic school theology, which is faith-seeking understanding. Um, uh, and brings it into a new, um, a new way of, of presenting those kinds of questions through the, the disputation method, which was beginning in the universities, and then is written down and recorded in, in the disputed questions, but it then is also the model for things like the Summa Theologia. Um, and so it's a much clearer um, articulation of, of key questions in the faith. Um, so I think part of the question, part of the, the strength of Thomism is is um, is this the question about the relationship between faith and reason, and allied to that I think is the clarity of the argument. Saint Thomas is very clear. Um, there are times when I mean, <laughs> there are times when it, it's quite difficult to get what he's talking about um, because the the, the the text is dense, um, and you do need to spend. You can't read. An article of the summer like an Agatha Christie novel, it takes time, you have to really, you have to, to spend, you know, 45 minutes, an hour, sometimes maybe even more dealing with an article. Um, but there is a real clarity of thought there, um, even if it's difficult to, to, to latch onto it because it has, it uses a lot of technical terms. Once you get through words like behooved. And behooved and things like that, yeah. Um, although that's that's the, the the joys of the English Dominican Fathers translation shack up there. Um, uh, so that's one thing. One of the other things that I think is is um, really only just starting. There's been a, maybe in the last ten, fifteen or so years, although I'm no expert on this. Um, one of the things that's been been very um, important is to to give to have some sense of um the role of 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 the fathers in St Thomas's theology um so a lot of work has been done to see some of the patristic um uh, references that St Thomas makes um not just simply in the summa theologia but also in in his other commentaries on scripture and in his commentaries on um uh even on Aristotle, um, to see where the, the fathers are kind of weaved together. Um, in some places, obvious things like the Catina Arrow, which he was asked to produce, which are scriptural commentaries and texts of the fathers. It's very obvious to see the, 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 um, the importance of the fathers there, because that's what the, te the text is about. So, but there, there's been a real emphasis on, on how he wove these uh, things together and also because when he was starting to produce things like the Catina um, uh, and starting to write the Summa Constantiles and starting to think about the Summa Theologia, he was located in a, in a part of Italy, Orvieto, where the papal court then was, which was very close to a number of different monasteries. He had access to the papal library. So it was one of the first times that he really got access to things like the documents of the ecumenical councils dealing with Christology. 
it's the first time that he'd been able to get some of the patristic texts. And so he would go to monastery, from monastery to monastery, remembering, you know, learning things by heart to, to take back and, and use. Um, so that's one, one thing. So there's also the question of, of, the, of the fathers and the synthesis that he provides of the patristic witness. There's also an increasing focus, I think, in Thomist theology um, on the fact that actually the majority, although we know him most of all for the Summa Theologia, and think of him as a, as a, as a sort of systematic theologian, his, his work was as a commenter on sacred scripture. He was the, that's what his, his life was spent doing. He would um, spend his time lecturing on the scriptures. It's why we have, um, he comments on all the letters of Paul. Um, he comments on Matthew and John, commented on Job, Isaiah. We have a lot of his, his scriptural commentaries as well. Um, and so we get a real sense of the way in which scripture is used by St. Thomas. Um, and there's, there's, there's just, uh, I think, a greater um, tapestry of scriptures, um, others, um, bits of Aristotle, bits of Plato, bits of um, other ancient philosophy. Um, all woven together in this um, extremely attractive synthesis, um, which is different, is is very different to, to Scotus and to Ockham um, and to, to later um, uh, scholastic theologians, where the scholastic method had become increasingly Baroque um, or Byzantine, depending on which you prefer. Um, I like Baroque things, so I tend to not think of it in terms of Baroque, but it, it became increasingly um, unwieldy um, uh, and increasingly the kinds of arguments that were being um, had in universities were um, so far removed from that initial period of scholasticism, um, which you see with um, in the beginnings of the university process, the founding of universities that um, it became increasingly um, abstract, um, uh, increasingly viewing the possibility of two different kinds of truth. Something could be true in philosophy, but not in theology, and something could be true in theology and not in philosophy. So this whole kind of um, almost, you know, a kind of double thinking process that you have to do um, in, in later um, accounts. And this, of course, is, is one of the backgrounds to, to the Reformation. Um, it's very clear that, that Luther didn't have a very good grasp of St. Thomas, even though he condemned scholasticism and, and St. Thomas, um, because a lot of what he was dealing with was just simply um, this uh, at one remove, um, increasingly Byzantine complex, complex um, arguments that, that weren't really um, weren't really actually even able to deal with the questions that they were posing of themselves. Um, and that's why the reformers um, ultimately reject um, scholastic method and... Um, yeah. Yeah, it, was, it, was a, it was around the time of, is after Aquinas, more around Scotus and, and afterward, 
it was they were getting you know the process was getting you know much too complex you know gaudy you could say if that's not yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, and um, the, ph the philosophy was was raising more problems than it was solving. Yeah, and it was also trying to um, find its its own path within the university and and trying to give itself some kind of distinctive area of study independent of of theology um, and claim a territory for itself. Um, and you can make a kind of I suppose similar argument to the way in which philosophy has. Um, uh, become in you know the 19th and 20th century increasingly abstract and there's not um when you think that actually the ancients were concerned in philosophy philosophical questions were basically how to live well um it, it's not clear to me that much contemporary philosophy is all that concerned about how to live well um and so you can maybe see a kind of um something of an analogous um, movement maybe mm -hmm. at the moment where there's this increasingly baroque and Byzantine and complex um, uh, world of philosophy which is is um, now it's different in part because actually it, it, there's just so much stuff that you can know and you can say almost exactly the same of of nuclear physics I mean I don't understand nuclear physics I mean I don't understand theoretical physics and all those kinds of things because it's it's an increasingly complex, complex and um, and specialized um, world in universities where different disciplines don't speak to each other anymore because of the complexity of the subject and and the the knowledge needed in order to engage with. And, um, so the it's a slightly different situation now, um, but um, I think some, maybe that critique of of, of contemporary philosophy, which um, could stand, which is that question of, of if philosophy is concerned with living well, contemporary philosophy mm. doesn't seem to be all that concerned with that. Which is why actually you see, I think, so, so much of a kind of popularization of things like Stoicism. Like you get the, mm. these little books in, in bookshops about Stoicism mm. for everyday yeah, life. Yeah. So it's about, um, it is people trying to provide something of, a, of an argument about how mm. to live well yeah. uh, from philosophy. It kind of reminds me of uh, Wittgenstein's idea of, of what philosophy should do is you should be using it to solve the problems that arise within language. Like you basically say there's, there's no true philosophical problems. There's only problems in language. And so you just need to use that to use logic and whatnot to try to clarify all, all of those, those issues that arise. The next thing I wanted to get to was uh, why be Catholic? Because it's true. Um, uh, I think that's the, the key question is um, why be Catholic? Well, because I think the Catholic faith is true. Um, I believe that the, the Catholic Church is the church founded by Christ. Um, I believe that while the Holy Spirit is active in um, the lives of Christians who are baptized and believe and call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Um, I do think that the fullness of truth is only found in the Catholic Church. Um, uh, I think that the valid sacraments are found in the Catholic Church. Um, uh, you know, some people will say, well, they might be valid in the in other churches, and I say, well, that's fair enough. But I mean, I wouldn't like to take my chance. You know, I, it's not one of those things you want to kind of. Well, it might be okay. Um, uh, and that's the main, I mean, I do think that's the fundamental reason why 
become Catholic, I think, because the fullness of truth subsists in, in the Catholic Church, founded by Christ. It's where you can live the most um, uh, authentic and, um, and true and lasting relationship with Christ, which you can through baptism and, and by being a member of um, other ecclesial communions. Um, but I think that the, that the truth subsists in the Catholic Church and in, in and the Catholic faith is the fullness of, of truth. Um, yeah. And because it's fun. Yes, yes. Who's your favorite uh, writer from the Catholic Literary Revival? Um, Catholic Literary Revival being... Like, a, you know, the kind of the, that... That general uh, kind of Chesterton like era, the, that kind of era, yeah. the twentieth century Chester, stuff. Yeah, kind of late nineteenth, early twentieth century era. Um, that's quite a hard one to answer because um, I quite like a lot of them, um, and I suppose there you can are pick a couple. If you want. <laughs> um, well, so the 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 classic. Um, uh, English ones, I suppose, would be um, War and, um, and Green. Mm -hmm. um, and there are... Um, I was just reading War. Uh, I've just started mm -hmm. to read re read Brightside Revisited, um, actually, because um, I have an idle I'm, moment on I'm Saturday. I'm currently on Black Mischief. Right, right. Mm -hmm. okay. Um, so I started to read even more again on Saturday after when I had a, a free afternoon, and, mm -hmm. and I thought, oh, I'll go to that one again. Um, and I think um, Brideshead's um, one of those things that I kind of go back to again and again because it 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 pays to to reread. I recently part of the reason why I listen I started rereading it is because I start I listened to a podcast on Mystic Institute about um, the influence of Augustine and Virgil on um, on Brideshead and on and, and Brideshead the, the the echoes of it you can see in Brideshead and its effect on war so. I started to read that, and having listened to that podcast, um, and I started to read it again, thinking, "Oh, this is," um, and um, and Graham Greene, in part because um, I think the way in which he um, deals with the way in which he writes characters is and, and creates characters is um, a very a very sensitive portrayal of, of people and the complexities of their lives and, and the difficulties that people find themselves in. And, um, uh, some, sometimes of their own making, sometimes just, um, uh, just the, 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 the way things end up happening. Um, uh, so I think actually I think actually Graham Greene in some ways, some of his characters have helped me, um, I suppose, to understand people and understand the kinds of problems that people come to you with as a priest. Um, uh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that people preparing for um, it was just it, it was a complete mistake in that some ways it just happened to be this way that I was reading um, a particular novel by Graham Greene just before my um, faculties exam to about mm. hearing confessions and and it's a, it was a novel about um, 
that's some of you some of the key scenes are when he goes to confession he's having an affair and, and some of the key scenes are around around the confessional um i wouldn't necessarily recommend that as a preparation for but at the same time actually that there, there are real human questions about um about people's problems and the, and the, the the kinds of situations that people find themselves in which um actually graham green is quite helpful in that regard um yeah who is your favorite saint besides Saint Thomas, Saint Albert? Because uh, 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 you can't choose Saint Dominic. Yeah, Saint Dominic. Country. Yes. Mm. Um, who is my favorite saint? That is a very difficult question. <laughs> um, uh, in part, as a Dominican, I would answer: Okay, if I can't have any of those, then Saint Augustine, um, because we. St. Augustine is important to our order because we use his rule. It's the, the, his rule is at the centre of, of, of the order. We, we, we were founded too late to write our own rule. St. Mm. Dominic couldn't write his own rule. St. Francis was the last to be able to write his own rule. Mm. And then um, the Fourth Lateran Council happened, so we, we had to adopt a rule. St. Dominic had to adopt the rule. And so he adopted the one that he, was, mm. he knew best, which was St. Augustine's, because he was a a canon before he founded the order. Um, uh, I was, there was something of, of, of this when I was, I preached at the Requiem Mass we had for Benedict XVI, I'll come up again in the century, mm. um, but St. Augustine is key for, for Benedict um, because um, he found apparently St. Thomas too dry and too abstract and too ready-made. Whereas actually in St. Augustine, he found somebody who he kind of describes as a, as a friend for life, really. Um, mm -hmm. And I think there's a kind of truth in, in that kind of idea of a friend for life. Um, uh, I've read a lot of St. Augustine and... Mm -hmm. um, it's much less sermons. analytical, uh, but it's yeah, it, it has a much more profound feel. Yeah, it's a lot, there's a lot of emotion there, partly because yeah, he's also yeah. writing homilies which are, and, and, mm -hmm. and is himself... Um, trained in rhetoric and trained yeah. people um, in rhetoric and so um, there's a lot in there which can stir the heart um, um, but I think I find it interesting partly because he's a very complicated thinker in, in the sense that you have to make sense of this person who preaches these beautiful um, sermons and yet sometimes can be very difficult to read when it comes to questions about grace and free will and all those kinds of things um, and so um, trying to get a, a sense of the whole person of Augustine um, is, a, is, a, is something that makes him a very attractive person to kind of, um, to engage with. Um, so that's, I suppose, um, my favourite um, saint in some ways. Um, uh, I mean, there are others who are important to me, I suppose, because um, of things that I've read that, that they wrote. Um, so some of the the um, Eastern fathers, mm -hmm. I, you know, um, and I, I suppose it was only after studying theology that I realised how much of a respect I had for them, and and actually, you know, reading bits of Athanasius and his his letters and things and his homilies and things. Um, after the after having started to study theology, they made a real impact on me. Same with the the grace and those kinds of things. So it's, 
it's often because I've read things that they've written and I find them extremely attractive um, presentations of the faith that they, they dig into me and they go dear to me. Um, uh, yeah. Um, there are others that I suppose I, I wasn't a Catholic when John Paul II died. Um, uh, and, and I didn't, uh, he wasn't part of my world in that sense, but I, I, was, rem I, don't remember, it. <laughs> I remember him. Right. And it's, it's kind of extraordinary to have this saint that you remember. Um, and the same with Mother Teresa. I remember Mother Teresa's death, actually, very vividly. And, and the sisters, her sisters are, are I say, best for them. And, and they've actually always been a real inspiration to me. Um, they were very close to the parish in London where I was, not close geographically, but close spiritually to the parish that I was living in, in London before. And in London before I entered the order, the parish priest used to go and say mass for them. And, and so in that sense, actually, those, that community and, and their, their, um, their way of life have been very um, important to my spiritual life. Um, um, and the sisters, uh, the missionaries of charity here have been very kind to me and very welcoming to me since I arrived here. So um, those kinds of saints are also um, um, important things for me. I mean, the, the beauty of, of Dominican life actually is that um, we have a real focus on fraternity in our in our common life and um, and you can actually get some real sense of the fraternity you have with the saints of the order and you kind of get to know more and more about them and um, and they do kind of, it's one of those sort of strange things about entering the order of, of any religious order, I think, and, and the saints of your order. You do kind of get a feeling of them as friends, which I think is, um, you get a real sense of the fraternity that you share um, through the communion of saints as much as you share with the people you live with, um, uh, which is one of the beauties of religious life, I think. Um, and not one that I think we talk about all that much, actually. Um, when we talk, talk about the beauty of religious life, we talk about you know, the beauty of the vows and the, and the apostolic life and all those kinds of things. But we don't talk about actually, I suppose, the particular friendship with the saints that religious life gives you, um, where these people are in a, in a very particular way, brothers and sisters, obviously they're brothers and sisters of everyone through baptism, but um, yeah. Who is your favorite philosopher besides Aquinas? Um, I suppose um, there there's two answers. One, the person who had, I suppose, most of an effect on me in terms of um, some moral questions was Elizabeth Anscombe. Mm -hmm. um, and it was only really reading some of the, her stuff when I was doing philosophy as a, as a student, brother, that, um, that I discovered um, her and... and, and found out about her and taught about her and, and, and um, so that was um, very helpful and I also think that she was one of these kinds of characters I know her, uh, her daughter uh, who's a Dominican sister and and, um, and some of her, her other children who could go to mass at, at Blackfriars in Cambridge and um, so you meet them when you when you're a novice and and then all of a sudden you kind of put all these things together and um, and you get some sense of the family and and uh, and also of her as a person because you hear stories about her as a person. So 
in some sense, actually, there's a kind of, because she had such a link to the order and, and, um, and knew so many Dominicans and things, it, it almost feels like she's part of the extended family. Um, and so that's, I think, maybe one of the reasons why I think of her as, as a particular favourite. One that I recently discovered, actually, but um, uh, I didn't know about until I read a book, another book, that mentioned him, um, is Michel Henri, which who was a, um, a French um, philosopher who died in 2002. And his last three books that uh, he wrote were um, Reflections on John's Gospel, one published posthumously. Um, but um, I'm just discovering him and the things that he, um, he wrote about John's Gospel. Um, so I suppose uh, a new discovery. Um, uh, yeah. Here we go. Okay. <laughs> Who's your favorite uh, Protestant reformer? <laughs> okay. Um, uh, well, I think that so uh, I was taught. Um, Reformation theology, we get taught Reformation theology mm. as part of our formation process. Um, and uh, this taught me two things. Um, and I was taught by a very, one of the people that basically teaches a lot of the, 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 um, the programs in the studio, um, and who was also my um, sponsor and, and instructed me in the faith when I became Catholic. Um, and it was from his lectures. He, he does some work on Karl Barth translation, but one of the things that his lectures, I suppose, gave me was I, I really developed a, a kind of dislike for Luther mm -hmm. um, and actually a kind of respect for Calvin. And the other thing I think probably... That's, that's interesting because I feel like most, most Catholics, if you ask them, that they're, they're closer to Luther because he seemed to be more Catholic in his theology, at least... A lot of the externals of the worship. Yeah, yeah, because, were, were yeah, because he, he seemed to but deviate less. He, he had he had at least some under some view of the real presence and stuff. Yeah, I think that's true. But I think oh, that's very mm -hmm. complicated. And, and I mean, there's a lot that's of books. Level. I mean, so I was in formation, obviously, when the five hundredth anniversary of, of the of the theses being nailed to the cathedral door happened, mm -hmm. and. Um, and I, I think, and actually, I think it was when I was actually doing my Reformation. It was either while I was studying Reformation in church history or something that that in twenty seventeen when that happened, that anniversary occurred. And um, yeah, it gave me a, a real kind of dislike for Luther in part because of these these books have been written about his psychological, mm. the psychological side of him, uh, his or his psychology rather. And I think a lot of those kind of stretch out the evidence and uh, I don't think it's really a very wise idea to try and psychologize somebody who's been dead for 450 years or whatever. Yeah. Um, but um, I just didn't get a very particularly warm sense of his character, of, of who he was as a person. I just didn't think he was very nice. Mm -hmm. And actually, increasingly, I just feel in some ways a bit sorry for him really because I just think he was very ill. Um, uh, I just don't think that he was a very well person. I think m maybe mentally, maybe I just don't think that he was. Um, uh, yeah, I don't see him as as a, a very sympathetic figure. Um, didn't didn't at one point he said something along the lines of he'd rather have seen like an image of the devil than of Christ. Right, I didn't. He, know he said something like that, or right. if I'm remembering it right. 
the other thing that I um, that attracted me, I suppose, well, not attracted me to, to Calvin, but that gave me a more sympathetic vision of Calvin is, um, I'm a fan of the novels of Marilyn Robinson, and um, and she writes essays as well, and uh, one of her essays was on on Calvin, and it it gave me a new appreciation, I suppose, for for mm-hmm. Calvin, and also. Um, something of maybe also the, the the development of Calvinism in America, which um, uh, I suppose surprised me and um, uh, and gave me a, a different side to Calvin and to Calvinism. Um, and I always feel like there's actually in some ways more more to hang on to or to to grapple with with Calvinism than there is with. With Luther, because it, I mean, at least Calvin is kind of systematic and and um, presents a kind of systematic argument in the Institutes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair argument. Yeah. What what advice would you give to people that are looking for, uh, you know, you know, uh, some sort of guide guidance for uh, their spiritual journey, like how to improve their spiritual lives, their prayer lives? Um, I think um, regularity is key. Mm. Um, Often one of the things that we try and do when we try and deepen our life of prayer is to create um, a very ornate system of prayer. Um, But that's always, I think, a mistake because it's almost... The, the enemy of discipline in some ways is to come up with this very ornate method of prayer. Um, and so I think um, dedicating yourself um, uh, to something that's regular, but doesn't have to be, shouldn't be too much, or mm-hmm. um, we often want to take on too much too soon. Um, so I think taking on a reasonable amount regularly is key of, 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 of prayer. Um, uh, and to also make sure that you're engaging with scripture Um, I think it's important to read something of the scriptures every day um, to make your way through the bible um, with the aid of a commentary be that you know something from um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend going through if you was your first thing going through, you know, John's Gospel with St. Thomas's commentary on John, because it's very technical in, in places. And, and um, uh, but, you know, having some kind of um, commentary from maybe from the fathers or um, Bede's commentary is actually a, a quite a good thing to try and start. You know, some of those those kinds of monastic monastic commentaries, and also some of the contemporary monastic commentaries on on the scriptures. Um, because they, I think, um, are helpful to, to see sides of the scriptures you maybe haven't seen or to open up the, the treasures that are there. Um, but I do think that, that engaging with scripture every day is an important thing. Um, uh, we as priests and those of us who pray the office, um, uh, we have scripture through the office of readings every day, but it's uh, if you, I try and read a bit more of um, the, the scriptures than just what we have in the office of reading. But sometimes I use the office of readings and, and, and go through it with a commentary or something like that. But 
Um, yeah, I do think that it's important to, this is one of my things at the moment, I encourage people to read the Bible because it's become very obvious to me that people don't read the Bible that much um, mm. uh, and are themselves then blindsided when they hear something from the scriptures or read something in the scriptures that that doesn't make sense to them. So. Yeah, don't be the stereotype of the Catholic that doesn't know their Bible. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, yeah. Uh, um, I think one way of putting it that I've seen is, uh, is Protestants know their, their Bible, you know, the, the way a mailman knows their route. They're like, uh, they're like the, the, this verse is right exactly at this number right here, and you can yeah, point yeah, out. Yeah. Or the Catholic knows their Bible more like, uh, and, the, and this part is, uh, you know, two blocks this way and two to the right. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's. I think it's, that's an important mm. thing. I also think that um, it's important to make. I mean, the the key. I think, in this, one of the keys in the spiritual life is to make the the Eucharist the focus. Um, um, and so here is spent in adoration, but um, really engaging with um, with the liturgical life of the church. Um, that can be, I think, a very rich way of of. Um, of of deepening our spiritual life because that is of course you know what the second Vatican council really wanted us to do is to engage more with the liturgy um mm. and to actually make liturgical life the center of our to live yeah. a liturgical yeah. life um and i think the more that you live a liturgical life the more the easier it is i think for the spiritual life to take root so make it you know trying to get to mass daily if possible but if not then trying to to make time during the week to go and, and visit the church and, and spend some time in prayer before the Blessed Sacrament and um, and those that Eucharistic centre of, of, of life is very important and maybe trying to pray the office um, um, which is recommended to everyone in the church as a, as a form of prayer so um, yeah it reminds me I recently read through the, the Tower of Babel and I was reminded that uh, Pentecost is really kind of a reversal of that, whereas you, you yeah. start you start out with uh, you know the, the one language is uh, spread out into many and there, there's confusion, but all of a sudden you have Pentecost and all of a sudden everyone's understanding. It's a united that. faith, yes, yeah, mm -hmm. a united faith and, mm -hmm. and, and the confession of one faith. And it's one of the readings that's given for the for the vigil mass of, of Pentecost. Um, I, I don't know whether, which year it turns up in the cycle, but it's certainly one of the readings that you can have for the extended Pentecost vigil, which we actually had here a few weeks ago. So, um, yeah. I, I, I recently came up with kind of an, an interesting, uh, not a theological, more of a kind of a philosophical term. Uh, we'll see what, what you think of it. It might be, might be completely bogus here, but it's not really a religious idea, but it's... Uh, I call it linguistic transubstantiation. Okay. So imagine that when you're talking about a, a, meta, a metaphor, normally when I say like, a, or let's say take the example of, a, you know, a, a pelican being metaphorical, meaning the, the church. Uh, so normally when I, when I say pelican, I'm talking about, you know, a, a literal bird. But in this, in the case of metaphor, I say pelican and I mean church. So you have like the, because a, a word is composed of both form and matter the same as you know objects are and so you so the the form being like the meaning of the word meaning the church in this case and then the, the matter being the word itself which is the the sound that produces pelican so when you have like, almost like a substantial change when you talk about going from talking about a, pe a pelican bird to pelican church so i suppose there are two 
Linguistic um, principles. This was a. This was a. This was a. There's a whole question when there were the Eucharistic controversies mm. in the church in the 12th century. Um, uh, well, the 11th century, then 10th century, the the Berengarius controversies. There was this whole question about how Christ is present in the scriptures. How the how there is the divine presence in the scriptures. And there was some question about whether there was an analogy to be drawn between um, the Eucharist and, and, and the scriptures. And it is a different presence because um, uh, Christ is present in the Eucharist in the way that he, um, mm. in, the, in the same, um, in a different mode, it's the same presence, right? Mm. So Christ is um, as present in the tabernacle of any church as he was yeah. standing by the Sea of Galilee. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a sacramental mode of presence rather than a, a, a physical substantial mm -hmm. substantial presence, but it's a it's a, a physical bodily presence in in the way that I'm present in this chair. Mm -hmm. It's this is not the way that Christ is present in the tabernacle, physically in this chair. Um, uh, he's present through a sacramental way, and so I think we'd want to be careful about um, a collapsing of 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 different. Um, kinds of presence yeah. um and i think we want to be a bit careful about making sure that we're not um uh confusing presences yeah um, I, i'm not using the, the term to talk about you know like the eucharist i'm just it's just kind of a general way to talk about metaphor is kind yeah, of a, so a form of linguistic transubstantiation one of the things you see in mm -hmm. the scriptures um and um i suppose you see it in um in this evening we have uh, this evening we have mark 12 chapter 12 beginning of chapter 12 where jesus tells the parable of the of the wicked tenants in the in the vineyard um which of course is um going back to isaiah 5 <clears throat> and the story of the, the 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 prophecy of isaiah about the lord planting the vineyard caring for it setting up a watchtower putting a hedge around it and the vineyard only only yielding sour grapes. Um, I think what we see in the scriptures is because Christ is 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 the hermeneutic, is is the key to, to reading the scriptures. We can't read the scriptures without Christ. He's the he is the way in which we read the scriptures. Um, one of the things I think you see in the scriptures is the way in which the Lord himself, and this is how parables work, I suppose, is that he takes, um, he is able, because he is the word, to um, uh, to, to reconfigure meanings and things. And, and that's something of what you're talking about, I think, mm -hmm. is, is present in the way in which the Lord uses, mm -hmm. um, uses language in the scriptures. Um, and therefore is is some of the way in which we can i mean how we can make true statements of god um it's about i suppose a raising of our language um herbert mccabe the dominican spoke about the way in which when you're making analogical statements about god you're kind of it's as if the the language is having a nervous breakdown because it's kind of getting to mm -hmm. the, the end point of it where it actually has meaning and it's it's kind of stretching the meaning to its its possible limit. Mm -hmm. So I think there's that question about the way in which language is, is raised to a new 
as with so many with the things that that Christ uses, language is raised to a new dignity, um, uh, which is why the, the way we use words and uh, is important, and the reason why um, our our statements about God analogically are are ways in which we profess our love and our fidelity to God in a way that wouldn't be possible if if Christ hadn't given us that kind of ability through revelation, through revealing something of God to us, being a perfect revelation of the Father. I don't think that, I think that that's what allows it, that makes it possible for our, for our language to be raised to this kind of new, new dignity, I suppose. Um, because although we're making statements about God, which are in, in our logical terms, philosophical statements, I think they're still ones which, um, which have a kind of, um, new dignity to them because of, of of the incarnation and what the incarnation made possible for our language to say about God. Mm-hmm. Very good. I think that's all I have for you today. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Right. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. This has been Point Counterpoint, uh, a Counterpoint Media Production. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>